Hello everyone, this will be episode 74 of the Strength and Success Show. Just going to wait for Rod to pop on and send a joint request. And episode 74 is going to be titled, 20 Solutions. Uh, caveat to that, brainstorming. But we'll get to that in a second. Just waiting on Riley to join in there. Uh, there we go, there's our view request, we'll get her on. And she'll hop on here. Hopefully we have a little bit better audio this time. There we go. What's happening, Riley? Hello. How are you doing? Oh, we went for the trap slip today. Uh, no, I'm not trying, you know. <laughs> That's worse. You're not even trying. <laughs> it comes naturally. Ah, you see, au natural. Born with traps like that. Yes. <laughs> I get it. I understand. You must pick up heavy things. Uh, like I said in the, before, because there's a little bit of a delay, we did have some audio issues last week from a delay in the, uh, it seemed to be the Wi-Fi. So far, so good. I don't see any loading things going on, so hopefully our audio is a little bit better this time. And it was a little bit of a struggle. That's why there was no, like, clip on Monday. And I think like the, I think you said like, the first 10 or 15 minutes of our podcast was a little screwy. Um, it's not necessarily, like, just the first 10 to 15 minutes. It's like, as I as I scrubbed through, it's off. Like when I was trying to ask, like you, it was weird because like you would hear my voice asking a question, and it was like you were from the future and came back because you were answering the question before I even finished asking it. So it was really weird. I don't know. I uh, I'm not mad about that. I would like to be like some kind of futuristic future thing, the Terminator, if you will. So come with me if you want to live. <laughs> All right. Well. Our format, as always, you guys can ask questions on the live. We have questions that people have sent us in our store Q&As on Facebook. Uh, both Riley and I dropped ours yesterday, Wednesday, so we got some questions from there. And sometimes we have a little bit of a backup from questions that people have sent us over the time that we eventually get to. But this is episode 74, and episode 74 is titled 20 Solutions. And this is kind of a, something I heard John Astaraf talking about. And he, he called it mindstorming. I mean, he was talking about how we get so fixated on our problems, we never, when well, we've talked about this in the previous podcast, but seeing, finding a solution, seeing a solution. But he's like, if you really just sat down for 10 minutes and tried to come up with 20 possible scenarios or solutions to whatever problems you have, and I don't care how many, he wasn't talking about major life problems. He's talking about even small things. A great example of that, people are like, I don't have time. But if you were to write down everything you did in a day and how much TV time you had, how much scrolling time you had, how much driving time you had, you can find that you can really make time and condense time and prepare ahead of time. That would be a solution. And I really liked his idea of whatever your problem is, big or small, taking 10 minutes to mindstorm 20 possible solutions. This can be so simple. Of, I want to squat 500 pounds. Okay, write down 20 possible solutions to how you get there, whatever that is. You know, they can be simple from reps, move up a weight class. Uh, go in gear, you know, whatever. Give up your naughty card, naughty juice. Whatever your solutions are, you're going to come up with 20 possible scenarios. And that, that really shrinks your problem down to more of a minuscule task that you just have to accomplish instead of an actual problem. Because you're looking at 20 possible steps of how you can solve this, this situation or things that you can do to make the situation go away or better or even goal achievement. Because a lot of our problems is simply not knowing how, not knowing who wants to help, not knowing who's available to help, and then not putting that plan into action. You can have the absolute best plan, but if you don't take any action on it, it's worthless. So the mindstorming idea was basically trying to create that action plan and then taking the next step, which is the action. This is a, I think that this is good from multiple aspects. Um, like the, the process of 
choosing 20 different solutions to your problems kind of helps with like neuro reframing, right? Mm -hmm. So we've mentioned before how generally people are more prone to the negativity rather than they are positivity or realism or anything like that. Like our brains are a little bit more hardwired towards that negative thing. Um, and we have to work really, really hard to not focus so hard on the negative things and find the positives and solutions because we go into like panic mode, fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system responses, and we think that everything's super negative. Um, so with the whole 20 solutions, you're kind of refreshing your brain to be like, okay, I have a problem, but I have the skills and the resources to come up with 20 solutions or even 10 or whatever it is, if there's not 20. Like you're training your brain to frame problems as finding solutions instead of being problem oriented. We've had a podcast in the past where we talk about being solution oriented instead of problem oriented. If you're always focused on the problem and how it is presenting itself to you instead of, okay, this problem, but there is a solution, you'll be stuck in that problem mode, victim mode, all these kind of things. So you'll never find a solution to whatever it is that you're facing. Um, I also like this aspect of like 20 solutions is a lot. And it may seem like you're not able to think of 20 solutions for a problem. Um, but I, I would recommend that you make the most, make the most asinine solution you can possibly think of, you know, just write anything out there. Like, even if it's something, like, if you're not willing to do it, whatever, just write it down. Like, that gives you 20 solutions. And then kind of go back and you can look at these solutions and be like, okay, I am very unwilling to do that. I don't have the capacity to do that. And then you cross things off and then you start to kind of narrow down your 20 solutions to maybe five or three. And then that gives you a little bit more of a clear path on where you should be going or how you should solve this problem that's in front of you or um, how you can tackle it. It's kind of, kind of like a pros and cons list, I guess. Um, and you filter out what you can do versus what you can't do or what you're unwilling to do. And that's the thing is like, if you write 20 solutions for a goal or for a problem that you're facing and you're unwilling to do all 20 of them, it's likely that you probably don't want to solve that problem or you don't want to achieve that goal or whatever it is. So those 20 solutions can kind of be like the bridge that's in, that like allows you to get from one edge to the other instead of just like standing and like blocking your way from it. Um, so I think that this and 20 is just like an arbitrary number. It could be 10, could be five, whatever. But I think when you're faced with a problem, writing down minimum five solutions for how you could solve this problem really just will kind of like imp overall improve your outlook on the situation that you're in because we get all, we all get like really doom and gloom, you know, when things go wrong. Um, I know I do like, that's my general thing. Um, and then I try to, you know, think about, okay, is this something that I can control? If I can't control it, then you just have to deal with it or move on from it or learn how to manage it. If you can't control it, then that's when you write down your solutions, you figure out what you're willing to do. You take this actionable steps. We've worked, we've talked before about like, working backwards from your goal. So if you have the problem and you have your solution here and you've picked your solution and then you say, okay, how do I get from this problem to this solution? Then work backwards, make a plan for yourself. But it makes it much easier when you give yourself lots of options rather than feeling so limited and small in the things that you can, because then you start to feel powerless. Like when you feel like there's nothing that you can do to solve the problem, you start to feel powerless and then you just kind of like let it consume you. So uh, this works in great aspects of reframing uh, neurally, and then also just giving you, 
giving you a clearer picture of how much a goal or something means to you. Yeah, I think you are saying it very, very well. We tend to create that feeling of helpless and hopelessness by focusing on a major problem or a lack of achievement. But if you can come up with five to 20 solutions, all of a sudden it seems less insurmountable and you feel less hopeless about it. And then you start also identifying who can help you get there. So you're not helpless anymore. You're hopeful instead of hopeful, hopeless. So I, I like that. It kind of reminds me of a, a Warren Buffett story. He had a private plane and a pilot that flew him around for like 20 years. And Warren doesn't spend a lot of money. He one of the, at one point was the richest man on the planet and, and drives a used car, lives in the same house he bought in the 1940s. And his like big treat is like a Dairy Queen Sunday every freaking day and a Coke. And um, the pilot asked him like, what is his secret? Why is he so happy? Why doesn't he need to spend money to do things? And he said to his pilot, he goes, make a list of 20 things that mean something to you, whether you want to achieve in life or you want to do. Then cross it off to just five and focus on those just five and you'll live a happy life. <laughs> so same philosophy in reverse was find 20 things that you want to do and then narrow it down to the five most important and do those five things and you'll live a happy life. The 20 solutions is the same problem because like you said, you can come up with 20 solutions. Some of them might be asked them, but you're going to find five that could really help you. And that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. So it, it, it takes out the, uh, it takes out your ability to throw a woe is me pity party, which like, yeah, every once in a while, we kind of all need to have those and, you know, let your feel, let yourself feel your feelings. But at some point, you have to stop living in the pity party and like move forward with it. So it's a it, it can feel daunting, and it can feel impossible, whatever. But uh, that's a very positive step to start solving your problems and stop being a victim. Yeah, I agree. Finding solutions putting some asinine out there because that, that still means there's solutions. Even if they're a little bit crazy out of, out of left field, they're still there. So there's solutions to everything. All right. Want to get to some questions? Yes. What's our first question? Do you approach accessory work with a bodybuilding intent as in focusing on hypertrophy? So we tend to break things down, both you and I do the similar, where we tend to break things down into lift builders and muscle builders. I like to classify it very easy that way. So you have your main lift and then you have a secondary lift that is part of that lift builder, maybe a third, depending on where they're at in off season or closer to me. But then your accessory work is supporting muscle mass and structure. So yeah, that starts to become hyper. I don't want to say bodybuilding. I want to be specific and say hypertrophy ranges and hypertrophy means necessarily muscle size. People get a little lost in the minutia and start worrying about the best joint penetration angle and low lat fiber activation and long head of the bicep contraction. That's really dumb if you're a power lifter because it's taking away from your main goal is to just be big and strong. And sometimes you have to be a little dumb to be big and strong and not worry so much about joint angles and structures and peak contraction and so forth, because those are supporting muscles and the bigger you can make them, the better. And if you don't have a large amount of muscle mass, you don't have shit to refine in the first place. So stop trying to refine what you don't have build it first. So that's why I emphasize it's in a hypertrophy rep range, like eight to 12 or eight to 15 or even eight to 20, because we want to add some capillary density. We want to add some size. The best example of this is upper back work. Almost everyone's upper back work is in some level of hypertrophy range because a bigger back is a bigger shelf for the bar to sit on. It's less range of motion for your bench press and more stability and structure and stronger to carry the load for your deadlift. So a bigger back does help you lift more weight. I don't care how defined it is. I don't care if you have Christmas tree lats. I don't care if you have rear delts that are symmetrical. That starts to focus on the minutia as far as powerlifting is concerned. So I don't like to say a bodybuilding approach because people start getting too rigid and start strict and start being overly strict. 
I want it to be brutally strong and adequate in size to carry the load because we're powerlifters or strongmen or weightlifters, same thing. Make it brutally strong and big enough to carry the load. And if you're at all concerned with refinement of your muscle tissue, you're in the wrong sport. Go over to bodybuilding. That's where that matters. This was one of my, well, this was one of the things that when we were doing that I always talked about because I enjoy talking about this specifically is like the muscle builders versus the lift builder builders and like lift builders are going to be movements that are increasing that have like more of a direct carry over into your comp movements your squat your bench your deadlift muscle builders are going to be those areas of opportunity that we have to improve if you have weaker lats that's your area of opportunity to improve so you would uh focus on those but another way to look at them is kind of like integration versus isolation um and a lift builder would kind of be integrating um so that would be rather than just focusing on your tricep that would be focusing on all of your upper back or something um so with the lift builders it's going to be more of integration with your muscle builders it's going to be more of isolation. So when I am programming, I generally, after the first two movements, um, you know, your main movement and then your secondary movement, generally that first accessory that I do is going to be still a lift builder. So it's going to be a lot of integration. So that may be like a row. That um, could be a bent over row. It could be a pen lay row, I, whatever it is. So if you think about it, a row is going to have a little bit more carryover as far as positions go. Like if you are a... Um, if you are a conventional puller, I do a lot of pen lay rows because I feel like that is the best, one of the better ways to engage your lats from the start because you are only able to row the bar using your upper back and your lats and everything. So that would be more of like your lift builder because it has a little bit more of a direct carry over to your main lifts. And then, you know, from there, if this is your deadlift day, um, I may have you doing single leg RDLs because maybe you need a little bit of hinge work and a little bit of hamstring work. Um, so that's going to be more isolating to the hamstring and the glutes. That would be something that is more of that hypertrophy rep range where I'm looking for like eight to 12 reps versus the rows. I may push those all the way to like heavy set of fives, depending on where you are in like your training. Um, because the rows to me, like, yeah, knocking out a set of 12 rows is cool, but like being able to push your rows heavy and kind of get used to that chaos factor of, like a really, really heavy bent over row for like five reps is going to have some carryover to your, uh, to your deadlift because like when we're pulling heavy weight, it's not always going to be perfect. There are times where you get pulled out of position because it's heavy and you mess up and your third attempt and it's a grind and it takes you forever and it's ugly and who cares because you hit PR. That's where movements like a bent over row that's like super, super heavy or like a stiff leg deadlift or something like that. Movements like that kind of train that little bit of chaos factor to where if you lose position, the surrounding muscles that are uh, integrating with your other muscles are going to be able to stand up and be like, hey, we got this. Because you practice. You practice doing your heavy cheat rows. You practice doing your stiff leg deadlifts. You practice doing uh, trap bar work because that helps you kind of keep your lats squeezed in more. So it's, uh, I think that people do get lost in that minutia and it's like they are trying to build more muscle in the areas that they want. And everyone wants to look aesthetically pleasing, yeah. But that should be kind of like, that should be your, if you're wanting to power and get stronger, that should be your secondary goal. You know, like your main goal is to get stronger. That's why you're powerlifting. But I feel like your secondary goal, that comes with like, that can be the aesthetics. So that's where you're going to isolate um, movements and areas of opportunity that you have. And that's also going to come from more diet too. Like your, the better that you eat and fuel your body, the better you're going to look. Not necessarily how many tricep pushdowns you did or how many bicep curls. Like those help, but those are not the overlying 
thing that kind of does it for you. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say like bodybuilding specific necessarily, but I, you know, you need some hypertrophy work in there. We need some conditioning. You need to build up some lagging muscle groups. So it makes me of the, uh, I know deadlifts on dead just here, but it was a Greg, Greg Panora post or quote where he's like, fat with no traps, unhealthy, fat with traps, powerlifter, healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a little gray area in there, but yeah, that, that's accurate. You know, at least look like you lift because of the way you eat to some degree. And, and that's, that's accurate. And you threw out a word that I love when I talk about certain accessories was chaos factor. Uh, that would be two words, but chaos. Like every time you're doing a good morning, you're training for chaos. Because if a raw lifter is losing their squat, it's very rarely lost in their legs. It's usually lost torso in position, their upper back rounds. So doing a lot of good mornings, getting both, like you said, for the, like the example of the row, high rep good mornings are great for building conditioning and torso strength and static strength for you to hold for a long time and thicker erectors. But heavy good mornings for like sets of five really teach you to be able to handle under heavy load and support it and build that chaos factor should shit go bad. So, you know, you could use both rep ranges, strength and hypertrophy with your accessory work. It just depends on what your intention is. So if you have a lifter who, like you said, the row, people are like the row as a carryover. Yeah, if you have a conventional puller who tends to struggle with getting their lat set when they pull, a pendley row is a phenomenal secondary movement because the, every time the bar is at a dead stop, the first thing you have to do is engage your lats. So you're looking for the intention of the movement when you're choosing exercise, and then you decide the rep range based on what they need. Uh, for like Farley said, for an example, the, the penley rows done for very, very high reps are a great way to build back thickness and lat size. Penley rows very, very heavy are a great way to build lat tension for your starting deadlift. It's just whatever your intent is is going to dictate the movement and the rep range. Yeah, I mean, I've had I've had plenty of squats in meets or even in training that have turned into a good morning because you lose position and it's heavy. I've had plenty of deadlifts that turn into a stiff leg deadlift. I've had plenty of deadlifts that turn into like the uh, dog shitting, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you leave Sophie out of this. Yeah. And what, uh, what, you know, what helps me in those times are like, like we just mentioned, like I, I train good mornings and I take them relatively heavy. So I know that like, if I get out of position, my low back can kind of handle that in case I fuck up. Or, you know, if my deadlifts get too far away from me, I have the low back strength and the glute strength to kind of pull it back me even if I fuck up. So it's uh, your, I like to focus on like the first two movements, or I guess it would be movement three and four, kind of tend to be more of that lift builder. Um, and those ones will tend to push a little bit heavier. If you're like, just coming off of meat, pretty much everything will kind of be in that hypertrophy rep range or like the higher rep range just to get the conditioning back. And then we'll get into some more stuff. But yeah, um, it's, uh, I, you got to build the lifts. So I focus on building the lifts first and then I focus on the smaller areas of opportunity after. Yeah, same refinement for the bodybuilders. All right, what's our next question? Any tips on stopping the bar from rolling up on squats? Hold it tighter. <laughs> <laughs> so that goes into what we were just talking about with the good morning. If your bar is rolling upwards, that means you're either doing one of two things, letting go of the tension of your hands on the bar, or you're literally pushing it forward by internally rotating the shoulders. For example, Riley has an issue of pushing the bar forward, dropping the chest down. She doesn't let go of her hand tension, but she tends to push the bar forward. So she's trying something a little bit different with thumbless and wrist back and so forth. Um, usually it's when someone doesn't pull that bar down tight enough is when the upper back starts to round. So we, we either have to pull the bar through us to create some pressure, pull the bar down, or in some cases, pull the bar apart. Like I, I had a, I was at a meeting, a guy was really struggling to do either or, and he was a weightlifter. So he usually just let the bar sit on him high bar for his squats, and that bar oscillated and spun. But when he hit the bottom, it didn't spin, so it kept throwing him. I instructed him to pull it apart, because as he pulled apart, he actually activated his root delts, and it was a place for the bar to sit on. 
So you just have to find your tension, make sure your hands are really tight. I always talk about pinky pressure. If you're using a talon grip, then you're gonna have to focus on pulling the bar down more and so forth. But usually that's a lack of upper back tension. It means you don't do a great job of keeping your upper back or your hands tight on the bar and that's why you're losing it there. Um, someone with a longer femur is always gonna have a lot of forward lean. So something that kind of helps them would be two things, would be moving the bar slightly up. So instead of a true low bar, a, sl a slightly less low bar, but also a heeled shoe is gonna allow you to keep your torso a little bit more upright. So you're getting a little bit less of that forward pressure rounding you forward. Those are a little bit of compensations in time while you work on getting the upper back stronger and being able to hold the bar. But that usually will help most people who lose the upper back would be to put on a little bit of the heel to keep your torso more upright and to also move the bar slightly up so it's not as low. Most people who lose it, it's because of trying to go too low with the bar. Not all the time, but the majority of people who lose it are trying to go too low and they end up getting rounded out of the hole and your hips shoot back and then they have that good morning finish. So they don't stay on their quads. If you want to have the most ideal raw squat, try to stay on your quads and that's gonna mean some level of forward knee travel and even, believe it or not, from the bottom, pronation. Because as you pronate the feet coming out of the bottom and you actually slightly adduct and prone it in, you're putting downward force into the floor. If you lose that pronation and you're still trying to push everything out when you're coming up, as you push out, your body's going to compensate for that lack of hip internalization by loading the low back. So if you're, if you're overly emphasizing not letting the knees come together because you don't want to have that valgus knee, you're going to end up in your back. That's what's going to happen. I also uh, see this happen often from people who are trying to jam themselves really, really tight in with their hands. Um, like obviously everything that you mentioned I agree with and like I like I Trevor said I'm working on now going thumbless and a little bit more wrist back because that's, I have that same problem um to where when I come out of the hole it's like it's like my body is just naturally trying to like push me out of the hole but it just translates into me pushing the bar forward which is super annoying so like I am um now doing thumbless and wrist bent back but I do see a lot of lifters who are keep their hands so close into their shoulders like they will jam themselves under the bar because they feel like with their hands that close to their shoulder they are in a tighter position and usually there's always exceptions and people with exceptional shoulder mobility but usually that type of position with a low bar when you're jammed in like that you don't your shoulders kind of like don't have any room to move so when you come up out of the hole you're going to internally rotate your shoulders and your elbows will fly back your wrist the bar is going into your neck and your hips shoot back and then it looks terrible so that is that is one thing that uh, no offense but that is one thing that i see happen a lot is like it's that i understand too because it, it, when your hands are in that tight you feel like oh i'm really really i'm really tense here but it's kind of like a little bit of false tenseness because you're just you're in an uncomfortable position for where your shoulders want to move. Um, so I will sometimes recommend, uh, you know, moving out your grip one to two fingers, or if you are that tight in going thumbless and kind of just like letting it sit on your back a little bit more. And that seems to help majority of people. Um, you mentioned one cue that I like a lot more than pulling your bar into your back and that's pulling the bar through you for me and for other lifters that I've worked with every time they try to pull the bar down into the back it seems like that makes that roll harder like it seems like when they come out of the hole trying so hard to push that bar into them kind of like slows them down out of the hole because they're still focusing on pulling down when they come out of the hole so they're like two opposing forces your legs are trying to stand up but you're still focusing on pulling the bar down into you and so it's just like you just get you just stop so I like pulling the bar through like trying literally trying to push it through your chest uh, through the front of your chest because that helps them 
one, you're getting bigger under the bar. Like you're opening up your lats, you're flaring your lats, so you're getting bigger, you have more frame underneath the bar, and then you're also tight and your lats are pulled forward and you're not, you're less likely to let your shoulders internally rotate. I love that. Get bigger under the bar is, is so underrated because the more mass you have, the more weight you can move. So getting bigger under the bar is a huge cue for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that was actually one where at the Perfect Storm meet when I was coaching John, um, his his handler and his friend Jeff, that was one of his cues for bench. Like every time John laid down on the bench, he was like, get big. I was like, yeah, that's, uh, that's actually, that's good. That's what you should do. Yes. Yeah. All right. What's your next? Okay. Um, ideas to increase ankle mobility for deeper raw squat. Ah, man, this was like two weeks ago. I answered this one, and I wish I could remember exactly how I answered because I talk about this a lot. I talk about the most common thing that a lot of people do is they focus on uh, stretching into dorsiflexion and not necessarily strengthening the dorsiflexion. What I mean by that is they stretch their calves or they use the banded ankle distraction to allow the tibia bone to go farther forward and they forget about the opposite direction. And so a lot of people who walk or move or sit tend to have tight tibialis anteriors and they don't have very good natural dorsiflexion. So there's nowhere for the ankle to move. And while that banded ankle distraction is a great temporary fix, it's not actually solving the problem because it's a temporary neurological solution. You don't live that way. So it goes right back to where it was. I'm a big fan of people like sitting on their heels. What I mean by that is like flattening your feet and trying to put your butt on top of your heels where you sit down because that's going to stretch out the tibialis anterior and allow for more freedom of motion. So basically, if you do that daily habit, I was just talking to Joao about this. If you do that daily habit of like trying to sit on your heels, like, like a kid in class and uh, martial arts classes, they do this all the time. They sit on their heels and they have great ankle mobility. But sitting on your heels will allow for that elongation of the tibialis anterior so you can get more natural range of motion with dorsiflexion. It's not jammed up and there's nothing tight in there. We, we get so fixated on the calf stretch and stuff like that. So I like that. I like to improve the ankle mobility through stretching the deep flexor of the foot, which is toes back or foot down. I like to sit on the, on the heels, which is the tibialis anterior stretch and so forth. But I also really like sitting into the bottom of a squat, even if it's supported, and allowing your body to get used to that. So you can do a really deep squat and just keep your feet closer and closer and just literally let your knees go forward and use your hands to push your knees forward and get comfortable sitting in that position because that's actively being there. There's a big difference between passive range of motion and active range of motion. I know a lot of people who are hypermobile but they can't demonstrate that depth or get anywhere because they lack stability and that stability compromises their active range of motion. So by learning how to be active in those positions, like literally squatting out of the bottom, holding yourself down there and then trying to flex your toes back will give you active dorsiflexion and active range of motion and actively improve your ankle mobility for the actual squat pattern because you're doing it in the actual squat pattern. And those are things that people miss. They just do the easy solution, like rolling the calves, banded ankle distractions, those are neurological fixes that are temporary. They go right back. They're not active fixes. So you actively have to take yourself through that range of motion often and let yourself get stronger in that position. And I always talk about this, lengthen to strengthen, get stronger at a longer range of motion that you need and you will carry over when you actually shorten that range of motion back up. Yeah, uh, even, well, you were, I mean, this is like, this is more of like a calf stretch and whatever, but you were showing Zach this last Sunday about like putting a barbell or a PVC pipe um, like basically between your, if you're on your, if you're on your knees and you're trying to, like you're talking about, put your butt on your heels and putting either like a barbell or a PVC pipe between your calf and your hamstring and like rolling it that way, that's pain. But that's like a, that's a good way, that's a good way to like um, roll your calves and your Achilles because those do get tight, you know, like a lot of us are sitting all day and whatnot. 
Um, so those do get tight. So that's a good way to release that. Um, even like, I like single leg calf raises from like an elevated platform. So even if you're like drawing a step or something, doing a single leg calf raise all the way down as far as you can go, like trying to touch your heel to the ground and then all the way up. And like basically a slow eccentric and a slow concentric is going to help you get more used to that range of motion of getting your angles, how it's supposed to go through flexion and extension. Um, so I like that one, but also honestly, like walking in proper shoes and like being active and everything is also going to help that ankle mobility. Um, if you are someone who works all day and you're just sitting down all day and then you work, you go to the gym and you're, you know, trying to squat or whatever, um, you're going to have a bad time just because you've been sitting all day and everything's not, nothing's moving. Everything's kind of stagnant. And then if you, after the gym, if you go home and you just sit on the couch for the rest of the evening, like you, you have no activity level and your ankles are never taken your feet, calves, ankles, every, they're never taken through any sort of range of motion that would allow them to improve or get better. So like, honestly, even just like taking a 20 minute walk every single day, wear, wear some decent shoes when you do that. You know, I wouldn't wear like combat boots or something like wear something. I was about to say shit kickers. <laughs> we went in the same place. People walking in shit kickers. <laughs> like, you know, I would recommend like walking in, you know, like, like a minimalist type shoe. Um, they're, very cheap you don't have to spend like 200 bucks on some of the bigger brands you can find them for like i found a pair from that alexis told me about from amazon for 40 bucks and it's a wide toe box it's flat to the ground it's low profile it feels great it feels like i'm walking barefoot and those are good to walk into so realistically just like more movement that you can get to that area is going to benefit you in the long run if you are someone who is very inactive and you start taking walks you'll probably notice that your calves are sore because you haven't been using them you'll never meet a kid, an active kid with a, with a mobility restriction. They just don't have it because they move through those range of motions. They run, they climb, they crawl, they jump, and they have zero mobility restrictions because they do that. And as we grow up, we develop mobility restrictions, like you said, because we finish our day and we sit on the couch and do absolutely nothing. Just move a little bit more. Move a little bit better, move a little bit more. It's not that complicated. It's just more of a habit. So I have that habit of sitting on my heels pretty much every morning, every day, trying to make sure I maintain my, my adequate levels of joint space and mobility because I want to be very uh, strong and, and lift and do this for a very long time. So I maintain it as best I can. Yep. Okay. Uh, next question is programming chains. What block or phase of training do you find most beneficial for chains? Uh, so just to caveat, just because not, not everyone's familiar with what bands and chains do. Bands and chains are used to kind of manipulate the strength curve. As we're nearing lockout, for most people, not me, obviously, I mentioned this, but we're nearing lockout on a squat, on a bench or deadlift, it tends to be the stronger portion of a lift for most people. So our body naturally decelerates. The idea of accommodating resistance is going with that strength curve where your body is naturally shutting down its force production because it's getting easier. The weight actually increases, so you have to accelerate and push all the way through. You're teaching yourself to accelerate through the entirety of the lift, creating more rate of force production. There is not necessarily a specific phase that has to be put into. It's going to be the intention of what you want. For a lot of raw lifters, a little bit different than multiply lifters, they don't necessarily do speed work as it is because every raw lift should be a speed wrap. You know, you should be lifting weight with full force and full velocity because you're not overcoming the inertia of the suit. Multiply lifters sit back into the gear and then they have to overcome the inertia where the suit kicks off. Raw, you're always on. So you should be lifting with everything with full intention and raw once you're warmed up beyond 50%. You should be putting full force into every single set, every single rep of anything that is working weight. Uh, using the accommodating resistance, though, can really over help overcome sticking points or like Riley talked about with integration, weak links. Um, the best quote from this was somebody noticed the way I bench press 
and they oh, actually I joked about this earlier. They described me as a 405 bencher from the bottom, a 350 bencher from the top, and I somehow meet in the middle, which is really, really accurate. Even my dead press today, I shoot off the bottom from a dead press, and then halfway up, it's just like it dies. So something like a count, and I was doing these against the comedy resistance. Something like that is to actually help me engage my triceps all the way through to the lockout, where they tend to want to shut down, and I don't ever finish the lifts. So you would be using the accommodating resistance to work on that. Make sure you're accelerating through where the weaker link may not be up to par as the other link. So I'm very, very strong on the bottom, exceptionally weak at the top. I'm working through that range of motion from a dead stop. So I get no stretch reflex and work on accelerating through. So it's a little different for the raw lifter than the, the multiply lifter. But accommodating resistance can always be used to make sure that you're giving full force and full acceleration but it could also be used to train around an injury such as underloading the painful or bottom range. So say for example, somebody had a hamstring injury, a glute injury, and squatting full range with full load bothered them. If they can use 50% accommodating resistance and 50% bar weight, it didn't because they underloaded the bottom, they can get a training stimulus. There's a lot of ways you can incorporate or use them, but most of them are used to overcome the inertia of the top of the lift where we are our strongest to keep that going through. Um, bodybuilders like John Meadows and stuff has used chains or coming resistance to work through the muscle in the same pattern. Those are higher rep ranges, 10s and 12s and 15s, and just really trying to exhaust the muscle. For us, it's more force development, so usually lower rep ranges, 2s, 3s, 4s, and maybe even 5s. There's not a tremendous amount in value for a power lifter to underload the bottom and do high rep sets with it. It's more so just a matter of building force production. We are actually at, Riley is loading. So I have no idea if Riley is talking or not talking. So I'll just keep talking. But Kyle actually wrote, when I hurt my boob, I trained for quite a while with tons of band tension and small load. Magic happened. Exactly what I'm talking about. He underloaded the bottom. So he hurt his pec. He hurt his pec. And then what he was doing is underloading the bottom where the, old, the strain of the pec was and really loading the very top. So the, the bands kicked in where his shoulders and triceps can take over. But he left his bottom alone for that part so he can actually get a trained stimulus and work through. There's a lot of variations you can use and work with it. It doesn't have to be specific to a training protocol. What I mean by that is people look at bands and chains as speed work. And I look at all raw lifting as speed work. So you're gonna incorporate it wherever you want to, wherever you need to. Uh, it looks like Riley got dropped off this call from the Wi-Fi. Hopefully she sends me a request to join because she has all the questions. So unless somebody asks the questions below, I'm kind of stuck. But Kyle had talked about this because I know Kyle, uh, Kyle loves bands. Kyle loves force production. He actually loves speed work for the raw lifter. He loves doing things like dead presses. There's our new request from Riley. Kyle will do that where he'll train both force development for that. And then also he'll use it for uh, maximal loading, super maximal phases before a meet. It's a very successful 500 bench. I don't know at what point you loaded and dropped and walked off, but I just stalled like a mother. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I was listening to you talk about John Meadows, and then all of a sudden it was just like, you're done. It like literally told me, thanks for, it was like the same <laughs> ending. Like it was the same ending as like when we normally get off. And I was like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm back again. Um, I Go home, man, you're drunk. <laughs> I heard, I, had heard, I heard what you said about John Meadows, and then you mentioned um, Kyle, what Kyle said about the bench press, but uh, that's about it. That's all I got. So. But after that, I just mentioned that most bodybuilders will use the accommodating resistance to fully exhaust the muscle. We're worse than looking for it more for force production, so we tend to go a little bit lower reps with them, ones, twos, threes, and sometimes even fives if it's in strength phases, but you don't see a lot of like sets of 10 with bands and chains for power because it wouldn't benefit you to underload the bottom that much in your building sets as it would for a bodybuilder who's trying to exhaust the muscle at, at, at its end range. 
So I have some biases towards um, bands and chains and like how I like to use them just from like my, my first official coach in powerlifting outside of me doing like template programs and stuff um, was very much into West Side. So I followed a lot of that. Um, he adapted it relatively, he adapted it well for raw lifters and changed the things that kind of needed to be changed. Um, but I tend to have a bias for bands being used exclusively for speed work and chains being used exclusively for like heavier work, I guess. Um, and that's just, that's just my own personal. Wait, back that up. Cause I know why you do this. Why do you do this? I was going to say that. Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were going off the topic. <laughs> no. So, so in general, I mean, in general, um, now caveat to speed work, I don't like to put speed work in for people until they kind of hit a threshold on strength. If you're someone who benches 95 pounds, I'm not going to have you put on bands and then fives on the side of your bench press and bench against bands. That's just, to me, that's not necessarily beneficial at that point. It's not that you need to generate more speed. It's that you need to create more strength. So with that, I'm going to focus more on building up the lifter strength. And then once they hit, there's no, I don't, I don't have an arbitrary number threshold for this. Um, but when, when I feel it fit and they have reached a certain strength level, then I will maybe incorporate speed work. But generally I feel like most of us don't necessarily need speed work. Um, like when you're grinding out your third squat bench or deadlift, speed kind of goes out of the window anyway. So it doesn't necessarily matter, I guess. Um, you, it teaches you to generate more force. So I like that. If someone is just very lazy and blase with their movements and they are just like, you can tell that they're not putting aggression behind it, I may give them speed work to teach them that like, hey, you have to accelerate. Because I have had that before where clients are just like, everything, their, their 10% looks the same as their 100%. Like no matter what they do, like it all just moves slow. So that's just a caveat to that. But so I like speed work or with bands because it is going to force the same pattern, right? So when you're working on speed work and you're doing bands specifically, um, you are going to accelerate against the bands, which is cool, but it's also going to keep you in like a straight bar path. So that way you can focus more on the acceleration portion rather than actually uh, like how it moves pretty much like it, it forces you into a straight line like you're not going to mess up your bar path you're not going to miss groove while you're under bands because it's forcing you into the same bar path so you can focus on literally just accelerating and not so much on uh how you're accelerating so it's more of to me a teaching tool for force and acceleration and speed i like to use chains for heavy work because this goes back to the chaos factor here so when you're like when you're squatting benching or deadlifting with chains it's going to pull you forward and backwards. You're going to get to a point in that bar path where you are, it is trying to pull you forward, it's trying to pull you back down, it's trying to pull you back, it's trying to pull you every which way that you possibly can. And in that moment, it is your torso that is helping stabilize you, which is what you need for all three movements. You need a strong torso for all three movements in order to um, effectively move them. If your torso breaks down, you generally lose all the movements. Um, so with chains, I prefer to go heavy because it swings so much. Like if you ever walked out of squat with a lot of chain, you get there and you plant your feet and you're still wobbling back and forth. You're, it's like you're standing on a sailboat, you know? So with the chains, you have to really, really focus on bracing your torso, keeping it rigid, becoming a brick in your midsection, whether that's squat bench or deadlift, you really have to focus on that. So I like chains for heavy work 
for the chaos factor, just as I mentioned earlier, like doing a stiff leg deadlift or a pin lay row or a heavy or a good morning, whatever. Um, because you have to learn to stabilize it. And like magically when you take off those chains and you go to squat a straight weight after you've spent some time uh, wobbling at sea, it's going to feel super stable. You're going to feel great. <laughs> so I prefer, I prefer bands for speed work, lightweight, just to teach someone force and acceleration. I prefer chains for someone who needs to learn to stabilize their torso a little bit more. Um, specific points in training, like phases of training, I feel like that depends on the lifter, I guess. I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to have someone taking heavy chain work uh, without some type of comp movement, like in their, in their peak, unless you're like super, super experienced, like Trevor really likes chain work in his peaks and that really, really helps him. But for the most part, someone who's newer, I'm not going to give them straight up just chain work all the way until the meet because then they're not, they're mentally, they're not practicing what it is that they're competing with. Um, I'm not going to give someone speed work probably in peak either. Like this is all going to be quote unquote off season building time stuff that I keep this in. Um, but generally when it gets to the meet, I take out accommodating resistance. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, summing up what you said very well is bands and grain technique, chains and grain strength and stability. And I like the way you formatted that, like trying to get someone to accelerate against the bar, you're going to get more so acceleration against the band than you will the chain. But trying to get someone to control the weight, the chain helps them more because of the way it's constantly moving. I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, chains are more fun. They just sound cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like someone's getting the kicked out of them. Usually it's me. <laughs> All right. What's our next question? Uh, do you see yourself coaching until you're able to retire? Absolutely. Uh, I, I love this. I love that I get to do this. I feel very, very blessed that I get to do this. It's not a fly by night thing for me. I've been coaching in some capacity since 2001. Obviously we're in t almost 2023 now at this point, 2022, a few months away. It's, it's been something I've done my entire life. Even if I went back and changed my education and finished degrees and did things, I'd still be doing the exact same thing. I don't see myself wanting to do other things. There are things that I want to achieve still and grow into. Absolutely. But coaching and helping people understand lifting is literally been my life's work and my life's passion. There's years and years and years of education tutorials and things that I put out there and seminars that both Riley and I have done, you know, spreading the word of the barbell and teaching people efficiency with movements and getting rid of that frustration. People forget that I've been lifting in some capacity for 29 years. The internet didn't exist in the same capacity when I started. Finding information and learning from people was very few and far in between. And I sat out coaching from a lot of different people, from a lot of different venues, from strongman, from weightlifting, from CrossFit, to powerlifting, to learn as much as I can about moving a barbell or moving my body in certain ways. I even worked um, at one point with uh, John R. Perez, who's a gymnastics coach, to learn core control, body structure, and different things like that. And that's what I like to emphasize and teach. So someone's education doesn't take them 29 years like mine did. It might take them two or three to progress and learn and love. And then I also like to really expose the long-term athletic development because one thing I really hate is the, the attrition rate in the sport from people not understanding long-term development and rushing the process and pushing and just using more PEDs or whatever they can. And they mentally or physically burn themselves out or physically injure themselves out in less than five years. And that makes me sick because I know that when they're on the platform, they love it. And I don't want people to lose that love for this sport the same way I have this love for this sport. I want them to keep it. I've been competing for 17 years now in strength sports and still progressing. And uh, this sounds really, really bad. But I still run circles around people who are, you know, almost half my age at this point 
because of the way I train, because of the way I do things, because of the way I understand programming and long-term athletic development. And I don't see things in a tomorrow plan, although it's funny because I'm trying to work it out with my life, but seeing things tomorrow instead of 10 years down the line. But in training, I want to do this forever. I want to be able to lift and enjoy and teach forever. Yeah. yeah. I think in some capacity, I will be coaching until I retire. And like, honestly, I really won't uh, retire. Like, I feel like if I get to a point where I have enough money saved and whatnot that I could retire, I'm probably still going to do this at least part time, you know, like, I don't, I don't see myself ever, ever really stopping working. I just I, I could I can't sit on the beach all day like that. <laughs> um, so yes, I think in some capacity, I will always be coaching um, until my retirement age. Basically, um, every career aptitude test I ever took um, in middle school, high school, whenever they make you take that, my answers were always teacher or professor every single time. <laughs> so I feel like no matter what I do, I will always be in some sort of like teaching or leadership role. Like that's always been kind of what uh, my jobs or what the aptitude test kind of said. And that's what I enjoy. Like I like helping people achieve the goals that they have like you give me a goal and I help you achieve it that's great that is that's that's what I'm here for I like to be that guiding hand for people so yeah I think that I would love for it to be powerlifting coaching forever because um, I love powerlifting and I love I love tape like teaching it helping people be strong especially like like I was talking about my favorite my favorite thing ever is not like not even just when someone hits a squat bench or a deadlift PR like those are great don't get me wrong. But like when a woman's like, I did five pull-ups today. I'm like, hell yeah, you did. That's right. You did five pull-ups today. Just because stuff like that is like so hard to come by. And like, I know that that's, um, that tends to be what most people's goals are. Like, I could not tell you how many client intake forms I've gotten where when I ask you like what some goals are, like people will be like, I just want to be able to do evaluate pull-up. And like, I don't know, that's just really cool for me. I don't know why that like little small one really really hits my heartstrings, but it does. But yeah, I think in some capacity, I will probably always be coaching, teaching um, strength related things. I, I said this ad nauseum, but I've been an athlete my whole life. So sports and like teaching sports and coaching and things like that are something I've always been around. So it's something I always enjoy. So yes, I would love to. That empowerment is powerful. I do love yeah. that. As well. Yeah. All right, question. Can I take creatine long term or should it be cycled? Uh, it's been studied for so many years now, since the late 90s, and long-term is totally fine. We have creatine in our body every day anyways. We get creatine from red meats and stuff like that. It's not a danger to take creatine in any way, shape, or form. You will see an elevated creatine breakdown in your blood system, but that's because you're taking elevated creatine or um, extra extra creatine. So you're seeing the breakdown of creatine. It's one, something used for kidney markers, so they initially thought it might be bad for the kidneys, but no, it's not bad. Uh, there's a lot of people going out there who do stupid things like recommend 10 grams a day of creatine. It's really dumb. Uh, <laughs> there's no benefit or difference when you take three to five grams of creatine or 10 grams of creatine. So why jam load yourself and spend twice the price for getting the exact same result? It just doesn't make any sense to me when people do that. And there's no point in loading creatine. When, when the companies first came out, they would market that you would, when creatine first came out, they would market that you would take five days of 20 grams a day for five days. And then you would drop down to a maintenance dose of five grams a day. What we know now that even if you did a loading phase 
or three grams a day for 28 days, you have the exact same amount of creatine in your system 28 days later that you did if you did the loading or not. So there's no point in loading it because the number one thing that caused that was gastric distress and diarrhea. Who wants that for fun? So just take three to five grams of creatine. You'll top your stores off every day. You'll have an amount. One pound of red meat is like, is like 2.5 grams of creatine anyways. Five grams of creatine is, is two pounds of red meat, which is really ironic because Schwarzenegger used to talk about one of his requirements every day was two pounds of red meat, which gave him five grams of creatine. <laughs> it's just a matter of, when you're taking creatine, don't just take creatine and expect creatine to do its job on its own. It's something that pulls intracellular fluid into the muscle cells, so you have to make sure that you are hydrated. Don't just drink pure water. Drink water with sodium because that's what it's pulling in there. The sodium is helping move the electrical conductor. Cell is hydrated. It pulls other nutrients in there to help repair. And, of course, the creatine is helping with ATP production, which is our power output, so you can perform more work or create more power by having a creatine in your system. But it's absolutely safe to take long-term. You do not need to cycle it in any way, shape, or form. And you don't need an incredible abundance about it. Just take three to five grams, and you'll be absolutely fine. The only time you may not want to take creatine is if you're weight cutting. That's about it. But like, if you're, if you're uh, you can take creatine year-round, but if you are weight cutting, like Trevor mentioned, um, creatine makes you hold intra intracellular fluid so it's going to bloat you essentially uh and if you're trying or it's going to i guess not necessarily bloat you but make you hold water yeah. uh, so if you are trying to cut weight that creatine could be a two pound difference for you so generally if you are weight cutting for a meat that's what we recommend is to not have creatine in that final like water loading phase i usually drop it out about four days before the meat and as i rehydrate back up i have it in my my rehydration drink, five grams in my rehydration drink from the day of weigh-ins, and there's five grams in my intra while I'm competing as well just to make it available to me. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time for one more. So sure. that will be, if you could have a training session with any athlete and pick their brain, who and why? I loved your answer to this, so I prefer if you went first because nothing I say is going to top what you did in your story. Okay. Uh, so my choices were um, Muhammad Ali, Kobe, and Mia Hamm. Um, we all know who Kobe is. We all know who Muhammad Ali is. If you don't know who Mia Hamm is, she's probably one of the most dominant. She probably is the most dominant uh, female soccer player um, out there. And it is not that I am choosing them because I need them to teach me how to work hard or how to, you know, follow a training plan or how to push myself in training. I would want to talk to them to pick their brain on how they were mentally strong in that um you know they're each one of them had faced their own adversity and they faced whatever it was to be the best and so i prefer to look at it from a mental standpoint because that tends to be where people are weakest is mentally you can be physically strong all you want but if you're mentally weak you're never going to be expressed be able to express that physical strength um so i would want to know what it was that they did on a day-to-day -day basis were they like they i mean all three of them were like I'm the greatest, like, you know, like kind of comes across a little cocky and you can say that they're arrogant or prideful, but like they proved it, they backed it up. So I would want to know where, what they did daily and like how they spoke to themselves, how they conducted themselves. Um, just basically be a fly on the wall and see like what it was that they did on a day to day basis to make them mentally the greatest at what they did. So that way they could show it physically that they were the greatest at what they did. Yeah, and I love that aspect because, you know, there's no secrets to lifting. 
uh, people like to pretend there is, but there's no secrets to lifting. There's efficient form, efficient mechanics, practical programming, and so forth. But the mind controls every single thing we do, which is why I love that answer. And you looked at mindset champions from an athletic background. And I think that is the greatest answer you could give there because you don't want to learn how they lifted. You want to learn how they lived because they competed at the highest level, lived at the highest level, and then encouraged others to do the same. So they were leaders within their field. And I really, really like that. And I don't think, I mean, my, my list might be a little bit different, but my answer wouldn't be very different at all. I'd rather not lift with them. I'd rather have like a three hour lunch with them and talk to them about how they inspire, how they choose to live, uh, what they've learned along their journey that they could pass on to others. Because those are things that I could learn and I could pass on to others. You know, squatting with Ed Cohn is gonna be great. I'll see how Ed Cohn squats, but it's not gonna teach me how Ed Cohn became Ed Cohn. I'd rather have lunch with Ed Cohn and talk to him about his life, his upbringing, his grow up, and the lessons he learned along the 30 years of lifting and competing, more so than a training session of just getting to watch him squat. Um, mostly because I've lifted with a lot of the greatest lifters in the world and athletes in the world, and they're exceptionally normal. In the gym, they're not superstars, they're not athletic, they're exceptionally normal, they're putting in the, the nothing special work, ironically, one of our ads concerts wearing a t-shirt and a gym today, they're putting in the nothing special work to become special on the platform. So lifting with them does nothing because I'm just seeing one snippet, one hour, two hours of their day, instead of talking to them about the 30 years of their life that led to that progress. And that's so much more important to me that the to to totality of their career and what brought them, drove them and helped them versus just hanging out and watching them squat. I wanna see the big picture always because there's no such thing as an overnight success. You didn't see the 10 years of work that went in prior. You only saw the 10 minutes on the platform. So I want to know about those 10 years. So that's, that's my mindset as well. And I really like the way she answered that. So I want her to go first because it was wonderfully answered for a very simplistic question. The thing about uh, people that, that someone's an overnight success, it's, it's not that they're an overnight success. It's that you weren't paying attention until they showed you how good they were, you know? So like Muhammad Ali, I will show you how good I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. True. Like it, it's not that they weren't, it's not that they hadn't, like Trevor said, it's not that they haven't been working for 10 years to do this. It's just that they finally achieved that level of notoriety in the public space to be like, wow, that person is, is great. Now you're paying attention. But it's like, it's the boring, it's the boring 10 year lead up is how, is what brought them there. If they didn't have that 10, 10 year lead up or however long it is, they wouldn't be great. So the 10 year lead up is more important than the 15 minutes of fame that they get afterwards. So it's more about the journey, less about the result. I feel like that is important. And for a younger generation who's not really familiar with a lot of what happened in Muhammad Ali's life, he's very much an inspiration. You know, there's a very famous quote of his is, I don't start cutting reps until it burns. That was his mindset. The work didn't matter until it felt like work. That's when it mattered. But he's someone who was at the highest level for a very long time under such political stress because he took to a religion that wasn't very popular. He had a skin tone that wasn't very popular. He had to deal with a lot. He was pushed down politically because of things. And he kept fighting and crawling his way back up and never quit, never, never got dissuaded by that. He just kept going and lived for his purpose and shared his purpose. But people saw him as arrogant and I saw him as confident. He believed in himself enough that he was willing to, and one of his famous quotes is, suffer today and live like a champion for the rest of my life. And uh, we bitch and moan about some of the hard work that we have to do, and he looked forward to it. And that's the difference in his mentality and some other people's mentality is he looked forward to the work. Case in point, he didn't start counting reps until it started to burn. I, weird, weirdly enough, and not that I do sit-ups very often, but whenever I have sit-ups in my program, 
that is the one quote that I think of every single time, time I do sit-ups. I don't start counting till it burns. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why, like, I made that. I, I don't know why I made that distinction or whatever. Um, but literally only on sit-ups, I have that same thought every single time. Yeah. And it shows you, it's a lasting impact. Mm -hmm. It's a simple thing. But he looked forward to the work because that work was an opportunity for him to show you how great he believed he is and could be. And he was going to show it. And, you know, you don't win the fight in the fight. You win the fight in training for it. Everybody knows you show up out of shape not ready. You're going to get your shit knocked out. And he understood training was a means to win. Yep. All right. That's an awesome way to end the episode, I think. So thank you for your time as always, Riley. Anything you want to add? Um, I could, I suppose, shamelessly plug myself. You should. <laughs> uh, so I completed my my uh, nutrition certification, my three levels of nutrition certification. So next week I will be starting probably taking on nutrition clients. Um, so that's exciting for me. It is still on my website, like under the contact me, there is a powerlifting intake form. There's a nutrition intake form. So that will be something that I'll be starting next week. I've already got a couple people that are interested and I just told them, you know, to let, let me take the week to kind of get myself in order, get all of my documents typed up that I need to before I can start. So that'll be exciting for me. I'm also finishing, um, I'm actually just starting a different certification for uh, from Lane Norton, and that is his, Lane Norton's nutrition thing. This one was through Clean Health Institute, but his is a bio lane one. So I'm starting that also just to add a little bit more information and uh, skills to my arsenal skills <laughs> all the local gangs want me for my skills with both stuff all right thank you everyone for joining us congratulations to rally on finishing that of course the next one i know she has an even another certification in line ready to go for that one too so you guys appreciate it who share the podcast it gets dropped every monday you guys can download it so if you couldn't stick with us today you can download it let's do it its entirety every monday on every podcast platform please share and support the culture to brand and page because it's what pays for this podcast and if you guys need programming without coaching, we have the Cultivating Strength program available. It's in both of our bios on our Instagrams. You can click the link there for Cultivating Strength. And your first week is free to try it if you like. I really should say at the beginning of every one of these podcasts. <laughs> Such a slacker. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us, and we will see you next week. Bye, Riley. Bye.